ACASTCAST. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So, you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall, rock-climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So, whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. With the Baker's Plus card, it's easy to get lower than low prices for the win. Earn fuel points on every purchase and save up to a dollar a gallon at the pump. The Baker's Plus card. All you do is win. Big, big savings. Sign up now at bakersplus.com and start saving. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. Savings may vary by state. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your favorites with the buy five or more, save a dollar each sale. Simply buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with your card. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show featuring Jason Zuck. Jason has been an intuitive psychic medium since 2004. This show will cover a variety of topics relating to spirituality, mediumship, self-improvement, and intuitive guidance. Whatever interests you, remember that we are all here to share and learn. Sit back and get ready to socialize with the Social Psychic. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show. This is Jason Zook. It's with great pleasure that I have the opportunity of introducing special guest Nicholas Pearson about his new book, Stones of the Goddess, Crystals for the Divine Feminine. Nicholas is a returning guest. He was previously on our show uh, July 26th of 2018. And I'm so happy to have him back as a returning special guest and a gemstone expert to discuss his new book. In the new book, Stones of the Goddess, Nicholas discusses each stone's spiritual and healing properties, astrological and elemental correspondences, goddess archetypes, and magical uses, as well as instructions for goddess-centered rituals, crystal grids, guided meditations, crystal elixirs, and spells. Pearson explores more than 100 gemstones and crystals strongly connected with the energies of the divine feminine, including old favorites like amethyst, geodes, and carnelian. He details each stone's spiritual and healing properties, astrological and elemental correspondences, goddess archetypes, and what the divine feminine itself embodies. It's with great pleasure that I welcome Nicholas to the show. Welcome to the show, Nicholas. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be back. And um, we're excited to have you. You about the stones of the goddess, what motivated you to write this book? You know, I wanted to do something that was a little bit different from some of my other books on crystals. And um, while I was working on my Reiki book, this idea kind of came to me. I was looking through a lot of very early texts on stones, um, like medieval lapidaries and, and, and older writings. And I started to see a big correlation between like world mythology and the idea of rocks and minerals that are associated with deities. And in particular, it was the goddess connections that stood out to me. And, um, you know, what started as just kind of a list of correspondences between specific deities and specific stones eventually became the whole book. Interesting. I know in your book itself, part one of your book talks about the basics of crystals and crystal energy. I wanted to see if you could explain that in your own words for our audience to get a better understanding of this topic. So, you know, there's so much out there um, 
on the topic of crystals, but I really wanted to have a, a clear and concise intro on how and why they work in this particular book, um, because so much of the book relies on the, sort of the eminently practical side of working with stones. I, I wanted people to know the why of things. Um, so, you know, in short, there, there are a couple different lenses we can look at this through. One of them comes from a more scientific route. Um, we kind of use the, the language of physics and optics and, and chemistry to explain how and why crystals work. And essentially, because of uh, really ordered and precise composition and structure, they have very ordered and precise energy fields. Those energy fields might interact with yours and mine or something else in the world to effect positive change. And, and ultimately, when we look at how crystal structures form and work and relate to the world around them, we kind of can group all of the functions of crystals into these five essential mechanisms. They're oscillators, which means that they resonate at um, very precise frequencies, um, both sending and receiving signals. They are harmonizers, um, so they can cohere energy and, and information, making them um, inharmonic with the crystal itself. They work as both prisms and lenses to sort of direct, distort, break down, um, and, and transmute light and, and energy. They're translators. Uh, they're able to kind of transduce energy or information from one form to another. And they are also recorders. They have this innate memory to them. Um, and that's part of what allows them to be not only the Earth's storybook, but also to hold the intentions that we might place in them to, to uh, effect a specific cause. Uh, above and beyond that, though, we also have the sort of mythological, the magical, the spiritual lens through which things work. Um, and to understand that, we have to look at um, things like um, the doctrine of signatures, um, you know, which in its simplest form is as above, so below, and as below, so above. You know, there are correspondences between the manifest world and, and other parts of creation. So we might see a quality in a stone that um, evokes the image of fire or the feeling of confidence, or we might associate with a particular sign of the zodiac or planet. And from those correspondences, we can derive a lot of um, the sort of magical and spiritual properties have been associated with gems for millennia. And ultimately, by kind of uniting these two parallel tracks, we get a, a clearer picture of how and why crystals work. It's a very intriguing topic because this is something that I believe you say in your book that mankind as, has actually embraced gemstones and the, and the healing qualities of them since the beginning of our recorded history and even before that. Is that accurate? Um, you know, there's there's a growing amount of evidence that suggests that actually the predecessors of modern humans, you know, Homo sapiens, uh, actually worked with stones as well. We can find things as far back as maybe 250, 400,000 years ago where um, earlier hominids were working with crystals and working with specific stones. We, we don't know what the purpose of that work was. We just know that they collected them and they, they did it were some sort of not-so-utilitarian kind of purpose. They weren't just pretty tools. They were something meaningful and valuable to, to these individuals. I would like to go over some basic vocabulary that you actually list on page 10 of your book, and I 10 to 11, and I really like it because so many people have an interest in crystals, but for them to distinguish between crystals, minerals, rocks, stones, and gemstones, sometimes they just think the words are interchangeable, and they may not understand there's actually different meanings to each of these terms. And I'll see if you could explain, for example, how crystals differ from minerals. Sure. So, um, you know, in short, all minerals are crystals, but not all crystals are minerals. Crystal is usually a solid substance. 
and it is defined by its uh, regularity, uh, property we might call coherency. So they have um, these repeating geometrically arranged symmetrical structures, and those structures uh, repeat all throughout the crystalline substance. <clears throat> we have, you know, crystal components in our own bodies. There are obviously things like quartz and topaz and calcite that we associate as being crystals. Um, but there are also things like liquid crystal mesophases, things that kind of exist in a state in between liquidity and crystallinity. So to be a crystal, you just need that regular composition and structure. Minerals, um, more specifically, are inorganic, naturally occurring crystals, which means they have to be um, in a regular composition and regular structure. And this is what we tend to think of when we think of crystals in terms of healing and magic and spirituality. Um, rocks, on the other hand, are aggregates of one or more crystals. They will not have a, a single crystal lattice, not just one crystalline structure um, of which they are made, but many. Um, rocks can be formed largely of one mineral. We could think of something like uh, limestone, which is chiefly comprised of calcite or they could be comprised of many minerals. Think of something like granite, which is a mixture of feldspar and quartz and mica, often with garnets and any number of accessory minerals. Uh, some of our most beloved um, healing stones are, are not true minerals, but are actually rocks, things like um, nephrite jade, which is an admixture of, of two different things, um, tremolite and actinite. And then we also can look at lapis lazuli. Um, which is primarily blue lazurite, golden pyrite, and white swirls of calcite. But, you know, there can be as many as 20 other accessory minerals in any given specimen of lapis. Uh, the next couple of definitions get a little bit more nebulous. When we talk about stone, proper definition of the word stone is just a solid substance of geologic origin. So it might be a rock, it might be a mineral, it might not exactly be either of those things. We have some treasured stones like... Uh, opal, obsidian, fulgurite, moldavite, these, these are non-crystalline. And because they don't have a crystal structure, they can't properly be minerals. Um, and so we often term substances like that as being mineraloids. Um, finally, we, we talk about gems or gemstones. And that's any of the above that we use for ornamental value. Some gems are not truly stones because they're of organic origin. We could think of amber and jet as being prime examples. Um, some gemstones are non-crystalline, you know, that beautiful opal that you might have set in a ring or a pendant. Um, but ultimately, they're, they're all hard, they're durable. Gemstones are usually um, defined by their value, and value changes over time. So what was valuable to the ancient Romans might be really common to us today. We might value different things for different reasons, but um, you know, not all of these reasons are necessarily monetary either. We can see since the very beginning of our interaction with the mineral kingdom, that you know, value has been something that is subjective and often, um, at least in part, informed by the spiritual properties that gems have. Can you describe, when you, dis when you discuss stones as archetypes, can you describe for our audience what you mean by that? Life is hard, but finding a really great podcast makes the days go by so much easier. Hi, my name is Blue Toulousma. I'm a writer, an emotional intelligence coach, and the host of Humanize with Blue Toulousma, a podcast where we believe that when you humanize everyone in the room, a great conversation is almost guaranteed. Join us every week here on Electricast as me and my guest co-hosts unpack big topics and interview even bigger personalities with a sense of humor and a dash of mischief. If you're looking for a new best friend in your head, we've got you covered. Electricast. Sure. So the, the word archetype 
kind of refers to the idealized form or image or idea of something. So, you know, we have just any old chair, but then we have sort of like the prototype, the sort of spiritual blueprint of all chairs, and that becomes the archetype for chairs. A lot of times in, in modern parlance, when we say the word archetype, people immediately go to psychological constructs like Jungian archetypes. Um, but the, the word is much older than that and has a much broader use. Um, so if we look at stones, they have these sort of archetypal roles that they've played. Uh, sitting is a great example. Um, it's the first stone in my first book, The Seven Archetypal Stones. Um, and wherever you go in the world, um, throughout antiquity, you find it in two prominent uses. Um, it is either a sharp thing or a shiny thing, a cutting edge or a reflective surface. It becomes the spear, the arrow, the knife, as well as the mirror, the crystal ball. Um, and so these become the sort of blueprints for its energy, as well as being archetypal, universal, idealized roles that um, obsidian plays in the archaeological record. And we often see that these, these physical manifestations of the stone, where they interact with human culture and produce artifacts and art and tools, um, are, are usually steering us towards a deeper understanding of the energy of the stones. So when we look at those really universal roles, we, we get a better idea of what the stones are here to do. Um, so, you know, those archetypal roles can show up in things like art and language as well as in, you know, ancient artifacts. Um, they're something that require us to interact with the stones. They don't, they don't exist on their own in those states, although the potential is there encoded within them. If, let's say you're a beginner and you haven't even thought of crystals before. If someone in the audience is listening to our overview right now of crystals and gemstones and the values that they can potentially provide, what advice would you give to a, a, newbie, a newbie crystal connoisseur about how to learn to practice um, a greater appreciation of our mineral kingdom and helping, it, helping them to evolve spiritually, would you have any recommendations for anyone in the audience that would fall into that category? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, buy my books, <laughs> but, but more seriously. <laughs> um, you know, find time in your life to kind of tune out the distractions of the world and just spend some quiet time with your, your stones, um, whether they're fine museum-quality mineral specimens or, you know, inexpensive tumbled stones or anything in between. Um, the tools that we have at our disposal often arrive at the times we need them. Um, so just get to know them. Uh, spend time appreciating common rocks that you find out in the world, along your path, up the side of the road, in your yard, by the seashore. Um, you know, all of these are, are part and parcel of the body of Mother Earth. And if we slow down enough, we can appreciate the language they speak, um, which is not to say that we will hear discrete words and voices in our heads. Some of us will, some of us won't. Um, but you might have an experience of the energy in some other form. It might be a sensation in the palm of your hand. It might be a, a, a tingling or a current of energy running through your whole body. It might be pictures that you see when you close your eyes. But this is the very beginning part of forging a relationship with stone. And, and ultimately, uh, no matter how many books we read, um, how many blogs we see online, how many expensive rocks we've got in our collection, if we do not enter into a relationship with them, we don't really have much benefit that we're getting from these tools. Let's talk a little about the divine feminine. If you can tie historically, for example, I vote, when I was reading, looking through your book and you, you were discussing this topic, Mother Earth was always something that resonated with me growing up. 
And I wanted to see if you can explain where the emergence of the divine feminine came and what happened to it over time in terms of the context of your choosing to utilize this within your book at this time, Stones of the Goddess. Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack there. Um, if, we, if we look at the earliest representations of human form that are carved out of any substrate, I mean, the oldest ones we've got are made out of stone because stone is durable, but they may have been carved out of things like bone and wood and, and other soft materials that have decomposed over time. Um, but when we see these images from the, the earliest forms, they're almost universally feminine. And this was a time when we didn't have great technology available in human hands. So it took a lot of time to carve something so intentional as the figure of a woman. And so we have to presume that these figures were not just there to be beautiful. They had to have had some sort of meaning or value. And there are you know, swaths of, of anthropologists and archaeologists who believe that these primitive representations of female forms are actually um, the, the first sort of devotional art dedicated to a sort of creator deity, a goddess incarnate. And so um, long before human cultures understood the sort of uh, causal effect between the, the act of procreation and the conception of new life and giving birth, it was believed that women were parthenogenic, that they actually created life unto themselves. And so therefore, if, if some being gave birth to the whole of the universe, it must therefore be a goddess. Um, and so um, early religion tends to be matrifocal. Um, over time, you know, the goddess gets lonely. We, we start to recognize the importance of relationship in all things. And, you know, we, we develop large pantheons teeming with goddesses, gods, and beings who don't quite fit on the gender binary spectrum all the time. And so, um, you know, over time, there's this sort of shift of power away from matrifocal and into patriarchal um, religion. And, you know, th there are lots of factors that come into play. We eventually have the rise of the Abrahamic faiths. We have the suppression of the divine feminine. We have power being stripped away from women and being put in the hands of the sort of religious elite. And, you know, ultimately we start to see changes in, in human culture. And, you know, some of those changes might have been good for the time they were in, but, you know, ultimately now we are poised at a time when we can uh, work together to reinstate the value of the divine feminine and, and find that within ourselves and one another. Um, you know, the, the soul itself has no gender. The soul itself is, is divine feminine, divine masculine, and, and more um, made into this tiny little spark that is here inhabiting this body. So the sooner we recognize the primacy of the divine feminine and the need for divine feminine and divine masculine to, to co-create, to coordinate, to heal one another, the sooner we can move forward into a new era. And I think that's why we see so much social unrest right now. Um, you know, there's that, that principle of as above, so below coming back. Um, when we start to see the need for these changes, they start to sort of highlight themselves so we can not to avoid them in, in the everyday life. And I think that right now, Mother Earth is supporting these changes and providing the tools that we need in the form of newly discovered rocks and minerals that are here to help us kind of anchor the new identity of the divine feminine through our healing work, through our spiritual progress, and, you know, really shift our consciousness going forward. And, and I, I, I like the way that you're, you're explaining this, because one of the things, we always look at symbols. Even in our modern society, if you were to say Lady Justice or the Statue of Liberty, 
uh, as representations of the divine feminine? How would you say that they represent the similar qualities of such an ideal? You know, it's kind of interesting to see, um, you know, in the time of the Enlightenment and um, the age of rationalism, um, you know, people started to move away from uh, religion being the center of all life. But because of the fact that some languages, um, like Latin, for example, have gender with nouns, when people wanted to personify specific virtues and ideals, if they were feminine nouns, like libertas or justitia, liberty and justice, they would personify them as women, oftentimes drawing upon the symbolism of the Greco-Roman pantheon or even other, other pantheons to produce these images. And what's that, what that has done for us is it has sort of etched into our psyche these, these younger, you know, in the grand scheme of things, ideas of the divine feminine that call upon ancient roots and are here to guide us forward. Uh, you know, I think the Statue of Liberty is a brilliant example of how the divine feminine, the great face of the, the mother goddess herself, um, is holding that torch to illuminate the way forward. And, you know, what, what better things to hold on to, to strive towards than something like that. In your book, you discuss the goddess archetypes. I want to see if you could explain that a little further and give us some examples. Sure. So, um, you know, when, when we deal with mythology, um, it's very easy to want to lump together um, deities that have had similar roles or functions or symbols attributed to them. And so we kind of end up with these universal or archetypal roles that, that different figures have worn. And it's a way for us as humans who naturally want to categorize and classify things um, to understand them better. Um, that's not to say that if we look at a figure like Yamaya from the Afro-Caribbean pantheon. She is not just a mother goddess. She is not just an ocean goddess. She is as multidimensional and living and breathing as you and I are. Um, but those are, those are some avenues that we can use to connect to these figures. Um, so we might have figures like moon goddesses, um, fierce garden justice and combat. Um, we might have, you know, like mistress of magic, the fairy queen, the, the mother of all things mystical. She's the initiatrix. We might have the idea of the, the psychopomp, the one who guides the soul from this world to the next. And so these, these lenses that we look at the divine feminine, as also divine masculine through, um, just allow us to sort of develop a better relationship and maybe strip away some of the, um, the ego that's involved in trying to get to know these otherwise unknowable things. Um, you know, ultimately, the divine feminine is so grand that my tiny little human mind can't conceive of it. And so by, by trying to take it one step at a time, piece by piece, through each of these archetypes, it allows me to see the, the whole just a little bit better. Um, this is also helpful when it comes to working with... Yeah. Um, it's also really helpful when we work with our crystals because the crystals will have qualities that relate to these specific themes. Um, you know, if we look at a stone like Larimar, which is not very old, um, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it hasn't been on the mineral market for centuries. So it doesn't have an ancient history or mythology associated with it. But if we look at the archetypal qualities embodied in that stone, it correlates to certain archetypes in, in various pantheons. It's related to energies of newness and freshness, we might associate it with the maiden archetype from the, the triple goddess model of maiden, mother, and crone. But also because of its oceanic origin and that beautiful Caribbean blue color that it's got, we can also connect it to deities that are associated with water. And so the, the archetype for both goddess and stone goes hand in hand. Very interesting. You discuss symbols as well. 
symbols of, of the divine feminine. And I wanted to see if you can kind of embellish on that a little and explain to our audience when you, when we're, when we're describing symbols versus archetypes, how does the importance of certain symbols attributed to the divine feminine work in your understanding of it as to your book? Well, you know, the purpose of having the symbols in the book was to give people uh, a means of visualizing otherwise abstract forces. You know, depending on whether you consider yourself a, a, a monist, an atheist, a theist, a monotheist, a polytheist, um, our ways of conceptualizing the divine are different. Um, but one thing that's really helpful is, is the idea of a symbolic language. And if we look at um, cultures around the world, there are certain symbols that tend to be connected to you know, different ideas about the divine feminine, things like flowers and spirals and equal-armed crosses and um, triple figures, um, whether they're lines or zigzags or spirals or you know, other forms, stars and moons and circles. And so through, throughout um, the section that deals with the symbols, it kind of gives you some interpretations of what those symbols might mean, how they correspond to individual aspects of the goddess, um, specific archetypes, but also in terms of working with crystals, they can become platforms for creating crystal grids or mandalas. They might be um, something you might incorporate into a, a sigil or a magical seal that you would somehow use to um, imbue or charge uh, a crystal with during spell work. They may become meditative focuses. So the idea behind these symbols is just to arm you with more tools that you can use to, to do the spiritual work that you're called to. With reference to the shapes that crystals take between points and globes and other various forms, can you explain where that, those shapes derive from? Sure. So, you know, some of these are natural. If we look at things like a cluster of crystals or uh, a botryoidal formation, these are things that happen in nature. Um, but, you know, we've been shaping stones for millennia, upon millennia. So um, certain, certain shapes that we attribute to the stones might have a more feminine or masculine character depending on the culture and the time and you know personal bias um, maybe draw from some of the same symbolic forms that relate to the goddess archetypes as well so if we look at a, a crystal sphere for example it might evoke the image of the sun the moon the stars our planet um, which are in many cultures uh, ascribed to the divine feminine we can also look at something like um, you know a, a bowl or dish carved from stone that, you know, is a receptacle or vessel, something that can, can receive. And so we might attribute that to being a very yin kind of energy associated with the divine feminine. Um, and so different crystal shapes are great ways for us to get in touch with goddess energies. Um, we might find carvings of, of hearts or even figures of goddesses. One of my dear friends and colleagues, Ashley Levy from the Love and Light School of Crystal Therapy, just gifted me some beautiful goddess carvings to commemorate my new book. Um, you know, they will surely go on my little crystal altar. You might think, find things like geodes named after their round shape resembling the shape of the earth itself. And, you know, the hollowness of them might also relate to the womb. Um, so even in our natural and polished stones, we find a lot of the same symbolic language that helps us relate to um, the divine feminine, as well as pull the energies of the divine feminine through that crystal lens to manifest in our work through healing and, and spellcrafting and the like. What is the triple goddess of stone? So there's a really popular model for 
um, the, the goddess as maiden, mother, and crone. And while this is not as ancient as many people might have us believe, um, it, it's originally traced to the work of the uh, poet and folklorist uh, Robert Graves in his book, The White Goddess. Um, but this idea of the goddess manifesting herself as a sort of ever static but ever changing concept um, we see in the tides of life through our life stages we see it in the changing of the phases of the moon and so um, you know it's, it's a really popular way to relate to the goddess we see her as the, the young maiden full of promise as um, the matron or the mother who is you know you know at her fertile peak, and we also see that the crone is the wisdom keeper, the healer, the one who receives us in death. Um, and when I was kind of working with these, you know, really big symbols, I started to see some connection to the rock cycle. Um, for those of you unfamiliar, the rock cycle is a model we use to describe rock in mineral genesis. And so we have um, igneous rocks and primary minerals, and we have um, sedimentary rocks and and secondary minerals, we have uh, tertiary minerals and metamorphic rocks. And, you know, there's no absolute way we could correspond them to the phases of, of the, the triple goddess. But in, in my work, it became really apparent for me, at least, that, you know, newly created rock, igneous rock that forms in, in, in molten lava or magma pools, um, really connects the idea of the maiden because it is the, the newborn of all the the mineral kingdom. We have metamorphic rock, which is what happens when any other variety of stone is subjected to heat and pressure, um, and it's formed, it is matured. It often forms as the matrix, which is literally um, the word for womb in Latin, um, in which other forms of rock are, are created. Um, this relates to the idea of the mother. And then we have sedimentary rock, which you know, if we look at the strata and canyon walls, those beautiful lines and bands like we might see in the Grand Canyon, for example, these are the rocks that tell the, the geological passage of time itself. They're, they're the wisdom keepers, the storytellers, the, the memory of our planet. And so they, they really resonate very deeply with the energy of the crones. And so through the book and my, my personal work, I, I kind of generated these, these three hypothetical deities, these, these three faces of the triple goddess as manifest through the rock cycle itself. And so we have Ignea, the maiden of stone. We have Metamatrix, the metamorphic mother. And we have Sediments, who is the sedimentary crone. When you discuss the different stones and crystals that we're looking at, I'm looking at chapter seven. And one of the things I wanted to ask you is you have the correspondences at the end. Could you explain motivate you to do the correspondences and how it ties into your presentation of the crystals and the divine feminine in your book? Sure. Well, you know, um, correspondences are, are something we talk about a lot in magical traditions, um, whether that might be um, you know, neo-paganism, witchcraft, Western occultism. You know, there, there are ideas that certain substances or actions or symbols correspond to specific outcomes, intentions, goals, or energies that we might be aiming towards. And so, um, you know, there, there are lots of different correspondences that have been sort of, um, you know, accrued around rock and mineral, as well as herb and color and anything else you can think of. It probably has some sort of magical correspondence somewhere. Um, 
but I really wanted to make it make this book as user friendly as possible in the sort of tradition of other magical texts on on gems and crystals. Um, I wanted to have those really accessible. So for every entry in the book, um, you're going to find a list of its um, magical uses, and then the the correspondences in the form of its elemental signature: earth, air, fire, water, and that elusive fifth element. Um, the astrological signature, both the, the planet and the sign of the zodiac it may be associated with, and then um, whatever goddess archetypes it corresponds to as well. So, you know, we might pick something like cuprite, which has a really earthy elemental signature astrologically because of its copper contents associated with Venus, um, which would also yield a sort of Taurian connection, the, the sign Taurus, but occasionally it's associated with the sign of Aquarius as well. Um, and so um, towards the end of the book, you'll see all of that information compiled in the tables of correspondences, um, the chart that connects the different goddesses to different stones, as well as charts for um, the elemental, planetary, and zodiacal correspondences. What I like about your table, it looks like it crosses almost every um, culture in our world, historically and modern-wise. How did you research this information to, for example, you went from Roman origin to Irish origin, Japanese, Egyptian, Greek, Welsh, Taino. What did you do to derive at all this information so that you created your chart and your table? So some of the information in the, the table of goddess correspondences is traditional. It's derived from either living magical traditions, uh, living spiritual arts, or from um, you know earlier works. So we're going to find... Um, a lot of connections between the fashioning of talismanic gemstones that are inscribed in specific spirits and deities and the names thereof um, that'll relate to mostly the Greco-Roman pantheon, but occasionally we find them associated with others. We can look at, um, you know, the mythological record, uh, like the story of the descent of Ishtar or Inanna. We see um, connects her to both Jade and Lapis Lazuli. So those are traditional stones that could be associated with her. Um, we can look at, you know, all of these things and get a, a good amount of of correspondences between stone and, and deity. However, um, we have a bunch of, of new stones, things that have never been used by ancient peoples because we're only connecting with them today. We're only mining them now. So um, in the cases of those particular stones, I might have examined the, the symbolic language, language that they speak and tried to survey what sorts of goddesses it might have related to best. It might have been just the lens of the archetype, you know, something like moon quartz or girasol is associated with moon goddesses um, because of its lunar appearance and energy. Then, you know, in that table, you're going to find it listed among the stones connected to moon goddesses. Um, you know, others are built upon, you know, earlier generations of researchers. Um, there's some really great magical texts on crystals that are out there that combine, you know, modern stone magic and crystal healing with, um, you know, more traditional research as well. So, you know, that that book is compiled from lots of different sources. Uh, yeah, that's interesting, too, because I'm looking at your elemental correspondences, earth, air, fire, water, and then you have spirit as well. And I wanted to see if you can explain historically how those elemental correspondences actually tie into the, the crystals and the belief behind it. So I don't know that necessarily um, there's a very ancient belief that 
that all crystals corresponded to different elements. This might be something that we see in, in more um, modern mainstream magical traditions. Uh, but the idea that one thing corresponds to another is a pretty widespread thing. So, you know, maybe we would look at something like aquamarine. It gets its name from Latin, aquamarinos, seawater, because it is a, a watery color. But it also has kind of a watery energy to it. So we can clearly associate something like aquamarine with the element of water. So in in our magical practice, we might use water to represent wisdom, um, movement, flux, uh, cleansing. And these are all things that are associated with aquamarine. So, you know, one can correspond or even substitute for the other in our magical practice. Maybe, maybe you want to carry the energy of water with you all day. And it's probably not realistic to carry a glass of water with you at all times everywhere you go. But you could wear a piece of aquamarine to embody those same archetypes. Um, and so that's where these sort of elemental correspondences come into play. They are part of the symbolic language of effecting change on a magical level. Very interesting. Going back to crystal spells and rituals, because you're talking about magical practice, you discussed creating a sacred space and the use of altars that have actually been utilized through multiple faiths and featured in such things as Christianity, Buddhism, and other, as, as well as Judaism. When you're working with crystals and you're using crystals in terms of spells and rituals, how do you um, categorize that or explain it to somebody who hasn't had a experience in it before? Like what, what I'm trying to get at is understanding a basic gist of how crystals are used and measured for rituals and, and spells and magical practice. You know, I think if I were having this conversation with someone totally alien to the idea of you know, a, a fairly formal magical practice, but someone who is already interested in crystals. You know, I might, I might ask them about how they used stones in their lives. You know, maybe they tuck one into a pocket for, for good luck, or they wear a bracelet to alleviate stress, have a particular pendant they wear when they feel like they just need a little extra strength in their life. And those, in and of themselves, are magical acts. Um, you know, magic is a means of effecting change in accordance with our willpower. Ideally, our, our higher will, you know, the perspective of the higher self rather than the ego mind, the ego self. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, both of these are ways that we can direct this change. So an act of magic itself needs that, needs a clear intention. It also needs um, a, a strength of willpower. You know, that's, that's the fuel for it. And, our intention becomes kind of the steering wheel. And then we need a vehicle, a vessel through which it is expressed. Maybe that's going to come through lighting a candle, reciting a prayer, uh, a visualization. Maybe it'll be, you know, charging and carrying our favorite gemstone to use throughout the day. So, you know, acts of magic take many different forms in many different cultures. And I certainly can't speak for anyone else's practice but my own. Um, and so since I work so intimately with the Mineral Kingdom, I wanted to create kind of a little... Um, intro to ways, I, clear examples of, of methods for using crystals for, for magical purposes um, in the book. That's very interesting. And in terms of crystal grids, I was going to see if you could explain that a little to the audience as well and how that ties into uh, your chapter for crystal spells and rituals. Sure. So um, crystal grids are intentional geometric placements of, of stones. Um, you know, we can't just kind of empty out our pocket after a long day and, and let our stones fall where they will and call that a grid. That's, that's not quite intentional enough. But uh, grids are subject to the law of synergy, which tells us that 
um, greater than the sum of its parts. So when we work with a, a specific placement of stones, it's you know, maybe it's six clear quartz points around an amethyst sphere. It's not just an additive thing where, you know, it is the energy field that generates the changes it creates are the sum of those seven stones. But it, it almost becomes exponential. Um, they create relationship. They, they expand above and beyond what they could do on their own. Um, grids can also become ways of, um, you know, like in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition where they use colored sand, often colored with crest and stones, among other things, um, to create those beautiful mandalas, which are meditative tools of focus, each one having a specific story it tells, a symbolic language that it evokes, and oftentimes a ritualized intent, whether it's invocation of a specific deity, a devotional act to create healing for the land or water. Um, crystal grids can work a lot in those ways. And even more so, we can combine the idea of crystal grid work with, um, you know, uh, like the crafting of sigils and other sorts of um, magical fields. So whether you are creating a specific shape, like a, a crescent moon or a wave or a spiral that, that represents your idea, um, or maybe drawing a sigil and placing the crystals on top of that, it's a great way to combine these two practices into one. I, I find it fascinating because I personally feel a very strong connection to crystals. And what, one of the things I enjoy, and you might find this as well, is when there's someone in your life, a loved one, and I automatically think rose quartz is good as a maternal stone for someone grieving the loss of a mother, for example, but it could be any type of grief. It could even be a breakup of a relationship. And when somebody that I do a reading for, for example, comes in with that kind of a situation, I'll gravitate to go to my office and bring them a piece of rose quartz and say, have you ever meditated with crystal before? Have you ever been exposed to crystal healing before? And they usually say no. And then I'll bring out this piece of rose quartz. And, and I always feel that certain crystals are meant to be gifted, as I know that's a common idea. So I'll give them that piece of rose quartz and, and I'll get feedback later that because of that interaction, now they're open-minded to the value that crystals can have in terms of mental health and just having to navigate the challenges that we encounter in our modern life. And I wanted to see, looking at your book, have you had anyone approach you yet about the power that they felt connected by, by dealing with this topic and thinking about it? Yeah, I mean, this is this is my everyday life, interacting with people who either are, are seeking guidance or reporting feedback on their work with crystals. This is something I've been doing for uh, a long time now. Over 20 years, from what I understand from our prior conversation, just your background itself. What have you found to be the most rewarding aspect of completing this book, different than your other projects that you've done? You know, honestly writing a book, editing a book, producing a book is a very laborious process. This one um, is my largest yet in terms of both word count and the number of stones and topics that are covered. Um, the art was a lot more intensive. And so um, with, with a little guidance from my dear friends and colleagues, Dan Lipicino, um, he suggested that instead of approaching it as work, I let this become a devotional act to the goddess herself. And so every day that I'd sit in front of the computer or, you know, drop my notes for the next part of the book, I would go to my altar. I'd maybe light a candle or some incense or just quiet for a few moments and dedicate the work I was about to do to the mother herself. And I found that it really wasn't work. So for me, I think the, the most life-changing thing about this book on a very personal level was 
the way that it allowed me to forge a deeper relationship with the divine feminine in my everyday life. And um, the fact that it's going out into the world and hopefully inspiring others is wonderful. And I really wanted to do that. But um, that, that magic that was made in front of the keyboard every day, just letting every word be my love song to the goddess was, was enough for me. I think it's fascinating just to be able to create this and have this as your, as your work product and something that will outlive all of us uh, to, to add to the collective knowledge of, of what we work with when we look at this area of study. I want to ask you about your compendium of crystals, that the, the different stones that you've actually looked at here. You, you mentioned that they, the ones that you've listed, obviously it's not an exhaustive list because that would be impossible to do for what you're doing for the purpose of your, of your project here, your book. But I wanted to, to go over what made you decide upon the crystals that appear in the compendium. And were there any particular crystals that you found were more uh, intriguing to you than others when you decided to use them for this particular part of your book? Yeah. So, you know, I, it was on one level really hard to pare it down to just about 107 stones. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some stones that, you know, once the book came out and landed in my lap, I thought, oh, rhodochrosite really should have gone in here. Or wouldn't it have been great to add, you know, a little section on ruby or whatever it might have been. Um, so part of what the, the stones in the compendium needed was to have a rich and varied uh, amount of evidence that supports their connection to the divine feminine, uh, whether that was evidence in my personal practice um, or maybe the, the practices and teachings of my peers, uh, whether that is in the literature ancient, modern, or anywhere in between, um, I needed to have a a good amount of source material so that I could really tie in the divine feminine. Um, You know, I I engaged in a lot of research for this book, more than any of my others. Um, And then the other thing that it really boiled down to was I I wanted to create a book that told a story that really bridged the, the most ancient chapters of human history with the future we're aiming towards. So I wanted to have a sampling of stones that were you know, very common to our ancestors, as well as stones that maybe haven't even been written about in books before. Um, and so this was an opportunity to kind of marry together the old age and the new age and allow us to recognize that there is continuity and that we are being prepared for whatever the next chapter might be. As far as some of the stones that were really interesting to me to write about, I think copper was one of the most interesting things that I wrote about for this book. Um, it, was, it was a really fun journey through language and history and religion and industry um, and art. Um, you know, some, some really interesting references all got kind of tied together in the case of copper. Uh, everything from ancient Greco-Roman religion, um, ancient mining practices, um, the etymology of the word copper, um, we see it also connected to things like uh, alchemy, planetary astrology, um, the practice of uh, uh, Western occultism, especially um, with relation to a goddess named Babylon from the Philemonic and Enochian strains of magic. It, it all kind of gets wrapped together in, in copper and becomes uh, a really fun journey to take. Um, so I won't, I won't spoil the surprise for anyone who's going to read the book, but that was probably one of the chapters I'm, I'm proudest, or one of the entries, rather, in that chapter I'm proudest of. Um, but there were some old favorites, like Lapis Lazuli, one of my most beloved gemstones. I was really glad to give that another treatment in this book. Um, it was fun to look at some of the newer varieties of quartz, uh, like the Blue Tara quartz and the Veil of Isis quartz, which is also um, considered a variety of Lemurian seed crystal. Um, the Scarlet Temple Lemurian seed crystal. 
sometimes called strawberry morning seeds. Um, those are really fun to get out because they're not really available in other books. So I really wanted to make this uh, a very timely piece of literature for crystal lovers. Tell me a little bit about alabaster. That's one I have not been exposed to so much. What, uh, what made you choose alabaster in terms of one of the sacred stones in your compendium? The thing that was the deciding factor in, in including alabaster in particular is that there's an epithet for uh, Mary Magdalene, um, the woman with the alabaster jar, because she used this alabaster vessel called an alabastron uh, in Greek to uh, anoint Jesus. And there are lots of um, myths and, and pseudo-myths and apocryphal tales that kind of connect um, Jesus' representation of divine masculine and, and Mary Magdalene is divine feminine together. And, uh, you know, she becomes kind of the symbolic grail. And here we have this material, usually either calcite or gypsum, depending on uh, the point of origin. But it's usually itself carved into sacred vessels and containers and masks um, and other things that are typically associated with the divine feminine. And so, um, you know, alabaster was a great way to unite the sort of Gnostic side of Christianity with ancient Egypt, um, and, and give someone a, a taste for divine feminine and maybe an underappreciated gemstone. I, the first stone that I gravitated to when I first got into this area myself when I was in Sedona in 2016 was amethyst. And when I bought my first piece of amethyst, I was actually in Arizona and I had it with me. And I remember the person at the shop there telling me that if you wear amethyst, while you sleep, you'll probably have more vivid dreams. So just keep that in mind. And that was the first time I actually, because that night I had it on and it literally gave me the most vivid dream. And it was a, it was a different type of dream experience for me. I wanted to ask you if, if you've had similar experiences yourself working with amethyst and in terms of one of the stones for the divine feminine, do you find amethyst is, is a readily a popular stone that people automatically if they were to list the top five stones, amethyst would probably appear on that list. And if so, for what reason? Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack there. Um, you know, starting backwards, amethyst is so readily available on mind in so many places around the world that it's it's been a trusted tool for both therapeutic and spiritual and magical purposes for a very long time. Popularity really hasn't waned in thousands of years. Um, it's been associated with a lot of different currents of divine feminine as well as divine masculine um, over the ages. Um, I, I personally have, haven't noticed um, amethyst necessarily giving me really vivid dreams, but it's not a stone I take to bed very often. Um, so that might be why, but it has long been associated with things like psychic development or divine connection with attaining wisdom um, and spiritual growth that it, it makes sense that it would be a stone to enhance the dream state. Well, I also think that's very interesting as well that uh, there's been these values attributed to the tradition of amethyst over the last, several millennia going back to ancient Rome. Uh, I believe it's something that they, they would say helps with drunkenness. Is that correct? Originally is how ancient Rome looked at amethyst is if it was like to help you uh, through either an alcohol issue, or if you drank enough, it would help in, in create temperance for you. You'll, you wouldn't feel as in, uh, impacted by alcohol. Is that how you interpret it or understand it as well historically? So um, going back to Greece, actually, the, the word amethyst comes from an expression omnithustine, which means to not be intoxicated. And um, 
you know, although there's a, a beautiful poetic myth that's maybe not so ancient as we've been led to believe um, that connects Amethyst to the god Dionysus or Bacchus, um, more practically, um, if you look at wine in ancient Greece, they didn't have um, watertight vessels. So, you know, the amphora would be made out of things like terracotta, which is relatively porous. So it would be lined on the inside with tar. And that kept it from being watertight. I, I don't know about you, but the taste of tar doesn't really set well on my palate. Um, so when serving wine, which was a lot more alcoholic, a lot more potent, and, you know, also laced with tar, um, they would cut it with both water and honey to sweeten it. Um, and so the idea is that, you know, you could serve someone wine from an amethyst glass and because their grapes were red or purple their their wine was a purplish color um, and if you watered it down more than normal so long as you served it out of a vessel of amethyst no one could tell that it had been watered down so you could drink and drink and drink and never get as drunk as you normally would um, so that's where the legends about it uh, preventing uh, inebriation originally come from but that kind of started a a sort of cultural memory, a spiritual pattern, wherein amethyst has been associated from, you know, most ancient times, even into the New Age, with sobering us up, not necessarily in terms of alcohol or any other chemical substance, but from the things that weigh us down. It helps us to highlight our most limiting behaviors or patterns in life, which, you know, might be drinking too much, but it might also be like negative self-talk or just hanging out with the wrong people or procrastination. Um, and learning how to transmute those behaviors and to get into the, the pattern of doing something healthier, more beneficial, um, you know, more, more you than what those things are. That's very interesting. Can you discuss calcite and why it's listed in your compendium? So calcite is a really abundant mineral. Calcium carbonate um, comes in the trigonal crystal group. Um, it's found all throughout the world. I think by and large calcite on its own isn't necessarily any more feminine than it is masculine, but there are specific varieties of calcite that we could connect to the divine feminine. Um, one in particular is a material called cobaltoin calcite, um, and it has a certain amount of the calcium in it that's been replaced by cobalt, and so it usually yields this bright pink, magenta, fuchsia kind of color, um, and it has been in, in relatively recently called um, the Aphrodite Stone. Um, it's associated with love, with beauty, confidence, creativity. Um, it's very deeply healing on an emotional level. So it kind of connects us to that archetype of the goddess of love. Um, we also have a, a relatively newly discovered variety of calcite. Um, it was first discovered in 2008 called the Isis calcite or the Bully Stone. Um, and they are found um, uh, on the Arabian Peninsula. And there are these kind of little amorphous chunks that have been polished smooth by the, the desert sands and winds. Um, and they've got this really lovely energy to them that's very wise, um, you know, very almost priestess-like. And so they're associated with the goddess Isis in, in modern crystal lore. Um, but, you know, calcite is a stone that is really adaptable, that is um, here to help us evolve and change and grow and adapt. So um, I think in a time when the world is in need of the reemergence of the divine feminine, a crystal that is so ready to adapt and transform and initiate those same changes within us is the perfect stone for connecting to the new divine feminine. I want to ask you about one additional stone, and that's obsidian. I know um, obsidian is used for multiple purposes. I wanted to see what you, how you 
you decide to include obsidian in this compendium. I, I think it's a very important stone um, for many reasons, but I wanted to see if you could explain to our audience your purpose for including it. Obsidian has been associated with magic and ritual and divination um, for eons. It is probably one of the, the earliest precious stones, even though today we may not consider it quite so precious. Um, it's been used for things like protection and divination, for astral travel, for psychic development. We can use it for uh, building a better relationship with the spirit ecology that's all around us. Um, so already it's, it's quite a magical stone. Um, we also see it cut and polished into um, a lot of different implements that are kind of warlike, that are sharp, that are incisive. And so we might associate this stone with, um, you know, gods and goddesses of war, um, as well as with dark goddesses, you know, those that represent the, the shadow self. So there may not be a lot of um, ancient lore that connects um, obsidian to specific deities. We can, through sort of modern lens, associate just plain old black obsidian with goddesses like maybe the Morrigan, the Kaliak with Kali. Um, there are lots of different varieties of obsidian, though. We can look at, um, you know, one that you don't often see in the literature called Midnight Lace Obsidian, um, which is found in two regions, um, Oregon and also in the Caucasus Mountains. Um, it has these sort of lacy bands of opaque black and then a sort of smoky gray that's transparent. Um, and so it looks like a veil. And so um, we often talk about the veil between the worlds and um, as being the sort of threshold between ordinary consciousness and non-ordinary consciousness, between the material plane and the spiritual plane. And, um, you know, the, the idea of this veil originally comes from an expression where um, Isis, Artemis, Diana, Athena, other, other goddesses were said to wear a veil um, so as to be unknowable to the human mind. And so to peel back the veil would be to see the great mystery, the ineffable and divine infinite face of the great mother. And so when we connect to this sort of symbol through the lens of this stone, um, it allows us to sort of transcend the, the limitations of ordinary thought, ordinary consciousness, and, and really tap into the infinite potential of the great mother. Uh, another, another place where we see the motif of the veil um, or shroud recurring is through the morning veil or the burial shroud. And so the Midnight Lace City is also associated with um, goddesses of death and decay, of mourning and grief. And so when time gets real rough on us, this is a really important ally that can help us sort of um, embrace whatever change is being incurred in our life and to roll with the punches as gracefully as we can. That makes a lot of sense. I, I, I completely agree that it has that type of value to it for sure. I I really enjoy having you on this episode, just like last time. I think the topic itself is so critical to understand and, and learn more about. I uh, we're, we're running close on our time. So I wanted to, before we, we conclude the episode, I wanted to ask you uh, about your website and direct our audience if they want to contact you, anything about either about, this particular project or any of the other things that you've done in the past regarding crystals and gemstones, where would be the best, uh, would be the best way for anyone in our audience who wants to learn more about you or reach out to you to, to actually, uh, so right on my website, which is www.theluminouspearl.com. 
Um, there's going to be a contact form, a brief summary of my published works. Um, pretty soon there's going to be a, a full schedule coming on the website to be able to look at my calendar of events all throughout the world. Um, this is going to be a busy year. I'm going to be traveling a lot to the Northeast, out west to Colorado, overseas to the UK. I'm going to be doing my first retreat at Glastonbury. Um, with wow. uh, my dear friends at, Ch <laughs> at Chalice and Time. So um, you can find more details about the retreat. There's still a couple places left at chaliceandtime, T-H-Y-M-E, uh, .com. Um, but otherwise, you know, feel free to reach out. I'm, I'm here to be um, support for all of you guys, the, the, the readers, the listeners, the crystal lovers. Um, and I, I look forward to connecting with many of you at my in-person events later this year. I want to thank you for coming on the show. I, I didn't get a chance to share it at the beginning, but I did have the opportunity of meeting you in person the other day, and I thought that was interesting because that synchronicity at its best was uh, when I emailed you in the morning about coming on the show, and then I saw you at the Avalon in uh, Orlando after that. It, was very, it, was, it, was, it worked out really well that we could do this episode today, and I really appreciate you coming on as a special guest, and I look forward to future endeavors working with you as well. Well, thank you so much for having me on again. Uh, great conversation as always. It always is. Thank you so much. I just want to thank our audience for tuning into this episode. And I am very excited about our second season. Nicholas Pearson has a, a, a broad wet, uh, wealth of knowledge and experience in this particular area. He knows a tremendous amount about the mineral kingdom. He's been studying it since high school and later pursued mineral science at Stetson University while also pursuing his music degree. And he's worked several years at Gillespie Museum, which is one of the largest mineral collections stored in the United States. I just wanna encourage you that if you have an interest in wanting to learn more about crystals, that this particular book is a great piece of literary work to consider. Stones of the Goddess, Crystals for the Divine Feminine. Nicholas Pearson, thank you so much for coming on. And I look forward to our additional episodes as we move forward. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Social Psychic Radio Show. Don't forget to join us for another episode next time. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes. You can also check us out on Facebook and don't forget to visit the Social Psychic YouTube channel. Until next time, it's a big world out there. Keep an open mind, embrace your paradigms, and know that the universe is always yours to explore. With the Baker's Plus Card, it's easy to get lower than low prices. For the win! Earn fuel points on every purchase and save up to a dollar a gallon at the pump. The Baker's Plus Card. All you do is win. Big, big savings. Sign up now at bakersplus.com and start saving. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. Savings may vary by state. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your favorites with the buy five or more, save a dollar each sale. Simply buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with your card. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. Electric acid. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage, behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for the, the Candle, Candle Power, Power Hour. Hour. 
Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baclaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An Electric Cast production. See you there. Thank you.